Hello, it's February 29th, 2024. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all have had a great week so far and are getting ready for the weekend. And for today's episode, okay, it's late. This was supposed to be a Valentine's Day week episode, a Love Gone Wrong episode because... Of course, it was anti-Valentine's Day. Um, I'm not against Valentine's Day, but I try to bring a true crime angle to Valentine's Day. But of course, I'm late and I do apologize. But I did go ahead and decide to uh, go ahead and release it anyway, even though it's late. It is Valentine's Day themed. Um, it didn't take place on Valentine's Day, but it's a love gone wrong story. Um, so yeah, just a little weird but and late again, but decided to bring it to you. Um, But I will, however, go ahead and warn you that today's episode talks about domestic violence. Therefore, go ahead and warn you and say listener's discretion is advised. And with that, let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1995, and in the city of Seattle, Washington, many people loved hanging out at Seattle's famed Pike Place Market, or maybe cheer on their favorite local sports team, which may have included the baseball team, the Mariners, the basketball team, the Supersonics, or the football team, the Seahawks. Also around this time, One of the biggest things Seattle was known for was the music genre, grunge. Many fans of this genre rocked out to their favorite grunge artist, which could have included Nirvana, Pearl Jam, or maybe Soundgarden. However, many teens and younger people who rocked out to this music made some of their parents concerned due to some of the artist's music talking about drugs, alcohol, and depression. Many parents felt this could lead their child into crime or worse, because after all, at that time, Seattle was considered one of the largest cities in America with pretty low crime. But little did some parents and other residents of Seattle know was that in March 1995, A shocking act at what is supposed to be a safe and secure place would occur, and it would leave many people in Seattle fearful. In the following case, you'll find out what event happened, the background of the shocking event, and the aftermath in a case I title, Chaos 
in the courthouse. Although today's episode takes place in 1995 in Seattle, let's go back to the year 1969 to the Philippines. In 1969, in the Filipino town of Katangan, a town of many fishermen, farmers, and miners, lived a couple named Zucchino and Marcella Ramirado. Around town, the couple was known as well-off, because they owned two mercantile stores in the city, and because of this, they were able to afford workers to clean around their home and do other quote-unquote chores. And the couple was very well respected. However, the family still faced extreme financial hardships, like having no electricity or running water. But they were very much in love and after they got married, they welcomed two daughters, Alex and Susanna. As their daughters grew up, the Remoradas put their daughters to work in their stores, and customers were especially drawn to young Susanna. According to reports, Susanna was known around town as bubbly, outgoing, and very pretty. At school, she had a lot of friends and made excellent grades. In fact, she did so well in school that she was declared an honors student. Also, reports state since her parents had workers around the home, unlike most of her peers, Susanna and her sister never had to lift a finger and were very spoiled. Reports also state Susanna was very sweet and talkative, and she talked about anything from movies to TV shows to everything in between. Once Susanna came of age to go to college, she left her hometown and moved 12 hours away to the city of Cebu, where she studied nursing at first, but then changed her mind and began studying hotel and restaurant management. Although she studied hard while away at school, Susanna traveled 12 hours every weekend by ferry to go back and visit her family. Also on the weekends and during school breaks, due to her looks, Susanna would participate in many local pageants, and almost every time, she won. Her biggest accomplishments were when she won the titles of Miss Katangan, Miss Maspit, and was a contestant for Miss Cebu, all her hometown areas. Her family was so proud of Susanna, and every time she won, her parents hung her awards, crowns, and pictures with pride. However, even though Susanna had all this at her fingertips and was receiving higher education, there was something even bigger she wanted and that was to marry an American man, move to the States, 
and live the quote-unquote American dream. Reports state that while Susanna was away at school, she told one of her close friends, quote-unquote, she wanted an American husband so they could have beautiful children. Everyone knows that children of Filipino and American parents are handsome. It's that American blood. It makes us stronger. She also told her that the reason she went into hotel management was because she felt she'd be around many American travelers and that one day the right American man would come along and take her to the States to raise a family. Susanna also told her mother this, but what Susanna didn't know was that at her school, lots of other women her age already had her vision in mind as well. And so did many other Filipino women around the country, at least at that time. Reports state that around 600,000 Filipinos during the 90s went abroad each year to work as domestic helpers and laborers. And many, especially the women, went to great lengths to attract foreign spouses. Reports further state that these workers traveled to not only America to find these spouses, but many went to Australia, Europe, Canada, or other Asian countries to find who they were looking for. However, many saw American spouses as the ultimate ticket to success. But some Filipinas didn't go out to work in other countries for their spouses. They simply sought help from agencies, usually by mail, and waited for their potential spouse to come to them. Throughout the 90s, many men around the world sought out, quote-unquote, mail-order brides to be their wives and to not have to travel all over the globe to find their, um, perfect match. And as crazy as it sounds, one publication states, quote-unquote, women aren't ordered or delivered like appliances from Sears, as was done on the American frontier in the 19th century. Nowadays, women are made accessible to men through agencies that provide the women's names and addresses for a fee. It's up to the man to initiate a correspondence and up to the woman to respond. Some agencies arrange tours in which men travel to meet prospective brides in person. In these ways, agencies are no different from the legal introduction services that have come into vogue all over the Western world in the past decade. Many of these publications also knew how to market these potential spouses to potential quote-unquote buyers by marketing them to what they have wanted by ethnicity or nationality with words like beautiful Latin ladies ready to meet you, gorgeous Pacific women, pearls of the Orient, beautiful ladies known for their beauty, charm, grace, and hospitality, or Russian beauties looking for American friends. After the men chose who they liked, within their catalog package, they obtained the woman's address, the airline ticket to the woman's country, and then paid for the wedding and travel expenses to bring her back 
to his home. However, even though the women hoped for a better life in other countries, what was in it for the buyers? Well, reports state that not only did the men quote-unquote buy a pretty-faced wife, but many also got the control and power they always hoped for in a relationship. And they thought that buying a woman from a poorer country would satisfy this desire. Meanwhile, Susanna and her friends heard from other women classmates about an older Filipino woman who knew how to find American pen pals. As a matter of fact, this woman worked with a man named Jerry Davis, who was based out of Washington State, and he ran a highly ranked and busy publication slash business named Asian Encounters. Jerry's business didn't just consist of beautiful women from different Asian countries. He also hired some of these women to recruit applicants. And after a woman agreed to start a portfolio, he would pay them as little as a few pennies. But to some of these women, it was a lot of money. So, when Susanna and her friends met up with the representative from Asian Encounters, they filled out an application had some pictures taken, and went back to their boarding house, not thinking anything of it, like the girls laughed, thinking nothing would come of their profiles. Susanna's profile read as quote-unquote, age 21, 5'3", 105 pounds, Philippines. Roman Catholic, hotel and restaurant management. Hobbies, Dancing, reading, cooking, and along with the pretty picture, Jerry Davis decided to feature her in his April, May, June 1990 issue. But what shocked Susanna the most was that almost as soon as her profile was featured, loads of men were sending her letters and other things to buy her love. As the months went on, Susanna had her catalog of potential spouses as she was receiving more than 10 letters a day from many different men, mostly from America. She'd receive letters and photos of American men showing what they had to offer, including men who showcased their homes and photos, or their swimming pools, or whatever else they thought was valuable enough to prove they could take care of Susanna. However, by the time the summer of 1991 rolled around, Susanna came across the profile of a man living almost 7,000 miles away in Seattle, Washington. And his name was Timothy C. Blackwell. According to reports, Timothy was a man in his mid-40s living in an apartment in Seattle. He didn't have much money working as a computer technician, and not much is known about him except he always wanted a wife. Not just any wife, though, a quote-unquote exotic one he thought he couldn't find in America. However, as mentioned earlier, he didn't have much money to afford the catalog services of finding an overseas wife. And reports further state 
he was behind on many of his bills, was a loner, and didn't talk much to anyone. So how in the world was he going to get what he wanted? Well, reports state, with his pay as a technician and doing handiwork on the side, Timothy saved up for his future bride. He eventually saved up enough to purchase an Asian Encounter subscription, and then he eventually began to correspond with Susanna. Susanna and Timothy exchanged more than 40 letters, a few cassette tapes, and occasionally talked on the phone over an 18-month period before Timothy saved up enough money to fly to the Philippines to meet her. He arrived in Cebu on March 3, 1993, and made his way to Susanna's parents' home by March 6. However, when the two met each other, the meeting seemed very awkward. After all, these two were from very different cultures and from very different places. Although they had corresponded well in their letters and tapes, they didn't really have much to talk about in person. However, even after meeting up every day for days after his arrival, Susanna and Timothy got married on March 31, 1993. Reports state it was a very big Filipino-style wedding with many people from around town coming by to celebrate the nuptials. However, reports further state that while it should have been a happy occasion, the newlyweds, especially Susanna, didn't seem too happy. It's not clear why at the time she seemed unhappy, but maybe it was because even though she wanted to be in America, she wasn't quite ready yet, or maybe because of the cultural differences, she was unsure about the marriage. But whatever the reason was, she and Timothy were now married, and she had to move forward with her plan. Meanwhile, after he got married to Susanna, Timothy didn't purchase a hotel for himself and his new bride. He instead spent several more days with his now in-laws and complained almost every day. After the wedding, Timothy and Susanna were supposed to catch a ferry back to the more modern Cebu. But when they missed it, Timothy stayed a total of six more weeks in Cadigan and he complained constantly of the heat and lack of plumbing conditions. Even though his in-laws tried to make him more comfortable, as well as their housekeepers, by borrowing fans from neighbors, cooking him American meals, and constantly offering him cold drinks, Timothy didn't find any silver lining. And he later found it appalling that he had to sometimes share a bed with two other people. Timothy was also upset when after he married Susanna, she preferred to hang out with her friends and wasn't as attentive to him 
as he thought she would be. However, by the time mid-April 1993 came around, Tim made his way back to the States, and Susanna stayed behind because it took her almost a year to get the necessary papers to join her husband. Finally, on February 5th, 1994, Susanna got her paperwork together and arrived in Washington. However, while most newlyweds can't stop fawning over their partner and are insanely in love, this was not the case with Timothy and Susanna. Reports state that when Susanna arrived in the States, she was disoriented with her new world. She wasn't used to the cold of Washington State, she didn't understand a lot of American norms, and she didn't like how Timothy berated her about her lack of understanding. Reports further state that due to their lack of chemistry, when the couple slept in the bed together, there was barely, if any, sex. Susanna refused to sleep in regular pajamas. As a matter of fact, she slept fully clothed, shoes included, because she was literally too cold even in Timothy's apartment. And the couple would argue frequently because they were just not getting along. The breaking point of the marriage came when, according to a police report, after having been so frustrated at his short-lived failing marriage, Timothy was said to have struck and choked Susanna. Susanna was able to get away from him and call the police, but when he was questioned by them, he said he was simply trying to help her wash her face. And according to Susanna, this was not the first time Timothy had assaulted her. According to reports, back in the Philippines, right after the Blackwells married, they were supposed to take a ferry back to Cebu so they could stay in an air-conditioned hotel and then wait around until Susanna got her papers in order. But when they missed the ferry because they were running late, Timothy blamed Susanna and then was said to have hit her. Susanna told her mother, who told her she didn't have to leave with him. But Susanna decided to go anyway. Back in Washington, after he was said to have hit Susanna again, Timothy was charged with misdemeanor assault. However, his charges were eventually dropped when Susanna failed to appear in court for Timothy's trial. But by this point, the Blackwells' marriage was over just 13 days after Susanna arrived in the country. Susanna stayed with some friends from the local Filipino community and soon after got a job at a factory. But Timothy was incensed. He felt Susanna never loved him and used him for the little money he had and to gain citizenship in America. So for revenge, 10 days after Susanna left, 
Timothy filed for an annulment of the marriage. And because he filed, it meant Susanna was facing deportation. You see, at least at that time, women and men, immigrants, who married an American, had to remain married to their American spouse for at least two years, or else face deportation. Timothy knew this, and even though he knew he wasn't getting Susanna back, by the time their annulment-slash-divorce filing was headed to court, reports state he told the court shortly before the trial that he would drop his annulment claim if she agreed to pay him $17,000, the amount he said he spent on her, including court cost, since their first encounter four years earlier. These costs included, outside of court cost, 2000 for the wedding, which included expenses to bring in a high-priced beautician from Cebu, another 2000 for the reception, and later on, $600 for a TV and VCR for Susanna's parents. Susanna didn't have that type of money, obviously, but her attorneys thought they could help her by bringing the battered wife's defense in immigration law to court. Since Timothy had struck Susanna in the past, her attorneys felt her case was strong. And if she won, she'd more than likely be able to stay in America. Also in court, Susanna testified that on the day Timothy struck her at his apartment, she was writing a letter to her family when Timothy started yelling at her and she began to cry. She said that after Timothy yelled at her to wash her face, he then grabbed her hair and pulled her backward, and then put his arm around her neck and squeezed until she went dizzy. She then said he began to push his knuckles into her back, and then pushed her face into the sink. When Susanna called the police, even though she pressed charges, she testified she told police she wanted to go back home. But Timothy told her she'd have to pay $500 a month to go towards the thousands he claimed to have spent on her. Not having the money, Susanna went to live with her friends, 46-year-old Phoebe Dizon and 42-year-old Veronica Loretta Johnson, both also Filipino-born and married to American men. And Susanna got a job at a factory. That's when Timothy started the divorce process. And as the divorce proceedings continued, the trial got ugly. Reports state in early March, Timothy testified and said, quote unquote, I feel very responsible because I feel like I brought a disease into this country. And he added that Susanna was a money-hungry con artist and that deporting her would be a small amount of justice. Susanna, on the other hand, told the court that not only was Timothy brutal to her, that he was impotent and that she thought he was gay. And then, on March 1st, 1995, Susanna dropped a bombshell that she was pregnant, but not by him. But 
Timothy and his attorneys claimed that Susanna got pregnant by another man once she realized her battered woman claim may or may not work and did anything to try and stay in America. Susanna, in response, confirmed that she was around eight months pregnant by this point and confirmed she was pregnant by another man, but that she was raped and didn't know who the father was. The same day, her friends Phoebe and Veronica testified about the abuse Susanna endured and that they had witnessed it. And later after the day's hearing, it was announced that closing arguments were to be held the next day on March 2nd. On the morning of March 2nd, 1995, Susanna and Timothy both attended their trial at the King County Courthouse in Seattle for the closing arguments, and her friends Phoebe and Veronica were there to support her. During the break, before the hearing was to end, Susanna, Veronica, and Phoebe were sitting on a bench in a second-floor hallway of the courthouse. When they were approached quickly, by a man wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase. He then sped walked up to the women, calmly pulled out a 9mm semi-automatic handgun from his briefcase, and shot them at close range. 25-year-old Susanna Rimrata Blackwell was shot three times in a straight vertical line, head, chest, and abdomen, killing her and her unborn child. Then the man shot and killed 46-year-old Phoebe Dizon and then shot 42-year-old Veronica Loretta Johnson, severely injuring her. At first, people in the courthouse thought it was firecrackers going off. But as soon as they saw the man standing with the gory scene, they scrambled for cover. Luckily, since it was a courthouse, police were there to quickly subdue the man. And he was identified as 47-year-old Timothy Blackwell. And he was immediately taken into custody. At the scene, police counted 11 shell casings around the bench. And in Timothy's briefcase, they found more ammunition and an envelope containing $650. And a last will that read in part, quote-unquote. I am of sound mind and body and take full responsibility for my actions. I wish to thank my family and friends, and I have others who have given me support. I regret not being able to contact them and say goodbye, as I want to very much. I believe they will understand my feelings. Reports state that the next day after the crime scene was cleared, Timothy was set to be in front of a judge to be arraigned for what he had done. However, at the last minute, 
officials decided to move his child away to the neighboring Sonomish County so the families of Susanna and Phoebe wouldn't have to witness the trial in the same place their loved ones were murdered. And horribly, later on the 3rd, Veronica Loretta Johnson passed away from her injuries during brain surgery, making Timothy's victims rise to three. On March 11, 1995, Timothy surprisingly pleaded not guilty. Through his attorney, he stated that while Timothy acknowledged he was responsible for the triple murder, he was led to do this because he was tormented by his soon-to-be ex-wife and her friends. However, the lead prosecutor opened by saying, quote-unquote, Timothy Blackwell committed a planned, purposeful public execution and that he was well aware of what he was doing when he calmly fired 11 shots at the three women. Reports also state Timothy was facing the death penalty. In the months since his trial started, Timothy's defense, while acknowledging he committed the murders, tried to persuade the jury to find him guilty of manslaughter. Therefore, he wouldn't get the death penalty, and that he was pushed to the edge. On the other hand, the prosecution said again that Timothy planned the murders, was cold and bitter, and he deserved to be punished for first-degree murder. And by May 1996, the jury agreed with the prosecution and found Timothy C. Blackwell guilty of first-degree murder. A month later, the jury recommended Timothy to be sentenced to life without parole, and the judge agreed, sending Timothy to serve the rest of his life in prison in June 1996. After Timothy was sent away, the King County Courthouse in Seattle added more security to the building, such as more metal detectors and security cameras. And although it's unclear where Phoebe and Veronica were laid to rest, Susanna's body was flown back to her home in the Philippines. And a few months before Timothy was sentenced, in April 1996, journalists from the Seattle Times flew to interview Susanna's parents, Zuccino and Marcella. In short, Marcella told the press, quote-unquote, Never mind Blackwell. Leave Blackwell to God. God will know what to do with him. The story of the murders of Susanna Remorata, Phoebe Dizon, and Veronica Loretta Johnson comes from the sources of the New York Times, the Seattle Times, the Sheboygan Press, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, so that's the end of that story. Like I mentioned, I knew it may be a little tough for a lot of you all out there because it does have, it did have some elements of domestic violence. Um, I'm going to just do a very, very, very short opinion piece. And I'll say, number one, okay, when I was researching this story, I know times have changed in the decades since 1994, 95, that era, um, those years. 
But a lot of the publications, a lot of reputable re- uh, publications kept referring to Susanna as the mail order bride, the mail order murder, murdered bride. And, you know, I felt like she was more than that. And I know the term mail order is a legit term. And I know apparently to this day, I don't know the statistics, but a lot of people still technically, quote unquote, I guess, buy their wives from other countries. And I don't like saying it. it makes me feel so icky saying it, you know, but mail order, like she wasn't packaged in a box. She was not, you know, dropped off by mail, like per se, you know, she was just, she entered her profile into a catalog and Timothy, I guess, paid the fee and did all that. And, you know, went to go get her and all this and that. And it turned out that it, Susanna was not living her American dream as she thought. And Timothy did not get the wife that he thought. Now, granted, I don't think she was a con artist. I don't know. I mean, I have heard some stories. I've seen some publications and TV shows where a lot of men, um, well, you know, I've only read about American men who have um, went through these services to get a wife and turns out that they did use them for citizenship only and turns out to leave them or not be very nice. But I don't know what that was the deal with Susanna. Plus, she's not here to defend herself anymore. So, you know, I'm not going to speak ill of her. So I wouldn't know. Um, but that's what Timothy said. But I don't I don't know if that's really the case because he did abuse her. And I did read also that a lot of these husbands who, you know, go through these services and like I mentioned in the episode, they just want these wives because they feel if they come from other countries, they'll just automatically be servants. They don't really, they want, you know, the sex, they want their house cleaned, they want the children raised, they want to keep them pregnant and things like that, but they don't really care about the affection. A lot of them don't, not all, not all, but a lot of them apparently I've read don't. They just want them there to be the submissive wife. And that's what Timothy was thinking he was going to get. Turns out Susanna held her own. She uh, called the police. She made the reports. And then she went on after Timothy said he, she had to pay him before coming back. She was like, well, I'll just go with my friends, Veronica and Phoebe, who unfortunately lost their lives as well to this madman. And I think he is exactly where he should be right now. And I do hope that a lot of women who have gone through these services and that they have been abused, I hope they got out and I hope they have not been, you know, I know a lot of brides who have gone through these services after they have gotten with their husbands, like I mentioned, have gone through abuse. And unfortunately, I'm pretty sure some of you have seen on TV or some of these true crime shows that they don't make it out alive. And a lot of these men just snap after not getting their way and not getting what they unfortunately hate to say pay for. And it's just really sad. And I hope there's some couples out there um, who have gone through these services who actually love each other not just in it for the money or in it for the servitude or certitude or something like that. I, I just really hope not. But that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you found this story interesting, even if it was a little hard to listen to. If you liked what you heard and have not done so, please leave a review for 90s Crime Time. Hopefully a good one. But if not, I understand. I will try to get better. You can also follow 90s Crime Time on Instagram, where I frequently uh, post other 90s stories, primarily on the weekend. And do not worry. I know I was gone for a while and I know this episode was late, but I do plan on having new episodes um, on a steady basis again. So look out for a new episode very, very soon. 
And with that, stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you very soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Mm-hmm.